A couple of pastoral notes before we begin our study of the Word. You can be turning, though, to Galatians chapter 3. First of all, because our church replaces a quarter of the congregation every year, a quarter, 25%, that means that those of you who are new and look around and think everybody else has been here a long time are wrong. Um, this last week of 40 women approximately at my wife's home, which actually is also my home, uh, although I did absent myself during that time, most of the time. Anyhow, of 40 women that came to be a part of the women's Bible studies, 18 of them have been at this church less than a year. And so those of you who have been here less than a year, let me just tell you, this is not my church, it's your church. And you don't have to wait for an invitation to make this your home. Okay? You don't need to wait for an invitation. You know when you walk into a home and you see that the front door is covered with a cobweb, that the person that owns the home will not be upset if you take the cobweb and and remove it, right? I mean, it's a nice, kind thing to do. You don't have to get permission to do it. Well, there are many cobwebs in Church of the Good Shepherd. And you will see them. And you will stop and think, well, it's not my place to remove that cobweb. But it is your place to remove that cobweb. And probably the presence of that cobweb is an indication that um, some of us who have been here for a while are oblivious to cobwebs or, or are so short that it doesn't hit us in the face. And so if you see the cobweb, go ahead and take it off. Now, what's the cobweb in a church? Um, at this point, if it were my children I'd talk to, I was talking to, I'd say, look, you're not an idiot. Think for yourself. <laughs> and so that's what I'll say to you. <laughs> you know what the cobwebs are, so take care of them. Um, for instance, here's a cobweb. This last week, I had occasion to go to Google and Google our church. And after going through 50 results of Google, five pages, because it comes up ten on my computer, I still had not found Church of the Good Shepherd when I typed in church and Bloomington, Indiana. All right? That's a cobweb. A lot of people today do a lot of their research with computers using Google. And uh, now I'm confident that Ben will handle that cobweb, but when you find things like that, you don't have to get permission from me to handle them. Just handle them. And uh, in another year, you will be the, the 75% that is welcoming the 25%. You'll be very grateful for the 25% that gets rid of the cobwebs. So, again, it's not my church. It's not the church of people who have been here three years. It's your church, and you don't have to wait for permission to do what you see needs to be done. If there's a cobweb, take care of it. Now, one other thing, and it goes along with this. Um, The reality is we live in a university community. That does not mean that students matter. They don't. They never have. They never will. But we have to at least act as if they do. And so, would you please love the students? Love them. Um, Care for them tenderly. Please have them into your home. Think of them as your children. If your children are too young for you to imagine this, remember, your children will soon move somewhere. It may not be because of school. It might be because of work. But students have a mama and a papa. And do you know what warms their hearts when they come and visit here and they see the people that have loved their children tenderly? So that means you have to do it. Mary Lee and I and Chris and Leslie and Joseph and Heidi and the rest of us that work with the college group, we can't do it. You have to do it. And uh, please don't let there be in this church a town and gown division. You've all seen Breaking Away, all right? We're not going to have that. This is a church where people that work with their hands and people that work with words are going to get along perfectly and are going to love each other and not see how they can establish their own superiority. And specifically tonight, we have changed the times of another small group so that those of you that want to can come to the college ministry. Many of you have gifts for college ministry. And there are people that come to the college ministry who do need friendship and love and encouragement, somebody to talk to and ask questions. So what are you doing Sunday night at 7.30?
I mean, yes, I'm talking to you. What are you doing Sunday night at 7.30? According to research done by the Family Christian Bookstores, or stores, uh, something like 85% of Christians around the country are shopping. And so they have made a decision they're going to open on Sundays. Well, now, come on, it's hard for you to establish a high principle for not coming to the college group if you're shopping. Now, you'd say, oh, I'm not. Well, maybe you're at a restaurant. Maybe you're watching television. So, come on, guys. Think. Is Sunday night the Lord's? And if so, what would honor him? And when you get ready to turn on that television and watch whatever the sport or the show is that you want to watch, think, think about the college students. Think about the need that they have to be loved, all right? And come on out. And if you don't know how to come... You can talk to any of us and we'll tell you how to get there. That's at 7.30 in the evening. And uh, I do hope that we as a church will be filled with people who work with their hands and love students that are spending a few years working with their brains. Okay? Now, I'm the father bear of the church. And I've given you my heart. And I hope you love me enough that you will have my heart. Okay? That's pretty intimate talk, all right? All right, so we'll get to Scripture now, all right? (laughs) Turn to Galatians chapter 3, please. Oh, by the way, the subject tonight will be the difference between general revelation and special revelation. And so maybe that will entice you if duty doesn't. Okay, Galatians chapter 3. Let's begin by reading the text again, verses 15 to 18. They're up on the wall, and also I hope you have a Bible, and don't worry if you don't, but sometimes go out and buy one and uh, start marking it. Galatians 3, 15 to 18. Brethren, I speak in terms of human relations, even though it is only a man's covenant, yet when it has been ratified, no one sets it aside or adds conditions to it. Now, the promises were spoken to Abraham and to his seed. He does not say into seeds as referring to many, but rather to one and to your seeds. That is Christ. What I am saying is this. The law which came 430 years later does not invalidate a covenant previously ratified by God so as to nullify the promise. For if the inheritance is based on law, it is no longer based on a promise. But God has granted it to Abraham by means of a promise. This is the word of God, and it is eternally true. Now, last week we saw that this section begins with Greek word Adelphoi, which is the Greek word translated through the centuries by people that work in English as brothers. And we saw that by using this word, the Apostle Paul reminds the Galatians that what is at stake and what is under debate there in the Galatian church is the nature of the family relationship at the heart of the church. And so he uses a family word. This word is a word that has a male meaning component. It is brothers, not brothers and sisters. He could have written brothers and sisters, but he wrote brothers. It is a word that has an inclusive content including both sexes. It has male meaning, but it does definitely include both men and women. And the third component we saw it has is that it has a family meaning component. And so the male, the inclusive men and women, and the family, all these things are important. And it's this third family meaning component that we move into as we go on to the next verses. Brothers indicates a family relationship, that all those addressed with this word brothers were born into the same home, which in this case is the family of God. We are all adopted sons of God. And it also says in Scripture, sons and daughters of God. And therefore, we are brothers one with another. Therefore, he begins it, brethren. We choose friends and are freely allowed to take them on and to cast them off at will. But no one is allowed to take on and cast off at will brothers. Adelphoi is a family word indicating a relationship created between boys and girls, either by virtue of membership in the home of a shared father, whether they are that father's sons and daughters by way of birth, or 
whether they are his sons and daughters by way of adoption. And for us, we are brothers one of another because we are the adopted sons of God. Bob Kapowitz, who is Jewish by birth and is a part of this congregation, is not a brother of mine because he was born Jewish. But he is my brother because he believed in Jesus Christ. And God was pleased to give to him the adoption of a son of God. Ephesians 1.5, He, God, predestined us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ to himself according to the kind intention of his will. And then in Romans 8, it says, For you have not received the spirit of slavery leading to fear again, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by which we cry out what? Abba, Father. Now, all this family language has a point. Specifically, exactly how do we enter the family of God? Do we become sons of God and brothers one of another through obedience to the law, specifically, in this case, circumcision, or do we become sons of God and brothers one of another through faith, specifically by believing on God's Son for the forgiveness of sins? And this is the heart of the message of these four verses. The Apostle Paul is making the point that the family relationship to which the word he begins this section, brethren, points, is a family relationship established not by works of the law, but by the promise of God which cannot be revoked which cannot be canceled. The Apostle Paul begins this argument with verse 15, in which he makes what I said last week can be an argument referred to as from the lesser to the greater, from the habits and traditions of man concerning contracts and covenants to the faithfulness of God concerning his contracts and covenants, his covenant promise. Verse 15, brethren, I speak in terms of human relations, even though it is only a man's covenant, yet when it has been ratified, no one sets it aside or adds conditions to it. Start with the way we do it as men, says Paul, and you will see that in our human relations, we have certain standards for our contracts or covenants, one with another, and that central to these standards is that once the contract has been ratified or agreed to, or we'd say today, once it's been signed, I'm sorry, Bob, I didn't see you, now I see you. Bob's here. <laughs> once this contract has been ratified or agreed to, once it's been signed, it cannot be changed. It cannot be set aside. And this is true, as the Apostle Paul says, even though we're only talking about human relations, about a man's covenant, then how much more dependable is the covenant, the contract, that the Word of God establishes? Because God, who is its author, who has made the signature, who has given the promise, he cannot lie. In Titus 1, we read Paul, a bondservant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ for the faith of those chosen of God and the knowledge of the truth, which is according to godliness, in the hope of eternal life, which God, who cannot lie, promised long ago. God cannot lie. God, who established this covenant with us, cannot lie, and he's changeless. You know, he's not fickle. He's changeless. We read in 1 Samuel 15, 29, the glory of Israel, and this is a way of saying God, the glory of Israel, the glory of Israel will not lie or change his mind, for he is not a man that he should change his mind. God has said in his word that he cannot lie, that he is changeless, and then specifically about his own word, he says this in Matthew 24, 35, heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. Now, does this matter to you? You know, we can look at nature and we can see that the seasons come and go. But then one day I heard in a poem written by a friend of mine that was a meditation on one little section of the book of Genesis, I heard in the poem that the reason the seasons change every year is why? Because God, who does not lie, who doesn't change, who says what? That his words will not pass away, made a promise back in Genesis, and the promise is, while the earth remains, what? Seed time and harvest, cold 
and heat, summer and winter, will always continue. So you thought that the seasons change because that's the way nature has set it up, right? Right? You eviscerated nature of its creator. But that's not why. It's the way it is because God doesn't lie, because he doesn't change, and because he says that his words will not pass away. Now, you wouldn't know that if you were a scientist who refused to read special revelation. Then you would be left saying, well, from somewhere, sometime, somehow. But if you're a believer who puts stock in the Bible, you'll say, God made the promise. Therefore, it won't change. It's true. And we will have winter this year. So, Paul, using a human analogy, knowing that those listening to him absolutely are familiar with the texts that say God doesn't lie, that he doesn't change, that his words will always remain until heaven and earth pass away. He says to them what? He says, even among men, and what's understood there is sinful men, faulty men, frail men, fickle men, changelings, liars, even among men, when the promise has been given, when the contract has been signed, you can't revoke it, and you can't go back and begin to screw around with the conditions, right? And what's he doing? From a lesser to a greater. If that's how we being evil are, how much more will God not go back and revoke his contract. Pausing for a second to pull in this analogy, we see the logic Paul is using here in verse 15. Brethren, I speak in terms of human relations, even though it is only a man's covenant. And insert the word sinful there. Only a sinful, only a creaturely covenant. Yet when it has been ratified, no one sets it aside or adds condition it. God's establishment of the covenant was and is unequivocal. This is the very nature of contracts or covenants, whether of God or man. As men and women were bound to them, how much more then is God himself bound to his? Now, we turn to the time when this covenant of God was established with verse 16. It says, Now the promises were spoken to Abraham and to his seed. He does not say, and to seeds, as referring to many, but rather to one. And to your seed, that is Christ. What I am saying is this, the law, which came 430 years later, does not invalidate a covenant previously ratified by God so as to nullify the promise. All right, so God speaks to Abraham. He gives him a contract, gives him a covenant, gives him a promise. He says he's going to make good on it, right? And then, 430 years later, God gives the law. All right? And so the Jews, being good legalists, as we are today, you and I, they say, okay, well, he gave the promise, but if we look at the Old Testament, we see that again and again and again, it's very clear that nobody is saved by faith. Nobody is saved simply on the basis of the promise of God. There must be obedience. And it's as God watches us and sees whether we respond to his promise with obedience, then we earn our standing with God. And in fact, those of us who are physical descendants of Abraham, are able to have two things in our favor. Number one, that we are circumcised when we're eight days old as boys. And number two, that we have lived lives of obedience. As a matter of fact, the circumcision that we get at eight years old can be nullified by us disobeying the law. And the Jews at the time would say that some were not Israel who were Israel, some were not Jews who were Jews physically, who, what, did very serious sins. Think of the Roman Catholic Church's doctrine of mortal sins. If you do very serious sins, then you're really out of the covenant, all right? And so what they have is the promise of God to Abraham, and they, they refer to themselves as Abraham's children, but they also have the law. And they say that, yeah, you can be a child of Abraham, a physical descendant through bloodlines, but you can commit very serious sins, like, for instance, failing to have mercy. That was one of the categories they agreed would disqualify you from the covenant, right? And then 
No matter how you're born, no matter who your father, grandfather, great-grandfather, great-great-grandfather, no, no matter whether or not you're physically descended from Abraham, you lose your position in the covenant because you have not obeyed the law. So what's Paul saying? Well, Paul is saying, look, you guys, he says, the law which came 430 years later does not invalidate a covenant previously ratified by God so as to nullify the promise. He's setting up an antithesis, all right? You're supposed to feel tension here. He's saying, look, it can't be both. It can't be both the law and the promise. And he's throwing in the fact that the law came 430 years later as showing it can't possibly be one with the promise. Because the law didn't come until 430 years later. Now, here's the truth. Even if the law had been given an hour after God gave the promise to Abraham, it would still be true what he's saying. All right? Even an hour, even a minute later. Because the truth is that the contract was finalized the moment God made the promise because God doesn't lie, he doesn't change, and he says that heaven and earth will pass away before the single jot or tittle of his law passes away. But Paul, wanting to make it absolutely clear to us, says, look, the law didn't come until 430 years later. All right? Do you understand what's going on? And so he's saying, how can something that didn't come until 430 years after he made the promise, how can that be the basis upon which you're able to go to heaven? The basis upon which you're saved? Can't be. And he shows, he says, the law which came 430 years later does not invalidate a covenant previously ratified by God so as to nullify the promise. Okay? When I first started preaching in Galatians, I said to us that you're going to get sick and tired of having Paul hit the issue of the fact that the law and the promise, that obedience and faith are absolutely mutually antithetical, mutually exclusive, absolutely opposed to each other. You cannot hold on to both, but it is always our way. Always our way. Always to try to hold on to both the promise and obedience. Now, why do we do that? Well, I'll tell you why I do it. For one thing, I do it because I do not want my children completely vulnerable to the choice of God. Now, any of you who have had children and are believers know what I'm talking about. Who has ever had his wife present him with a child? What mother who has ever gone through the pains of labor in bringing a life into this world is delighted to say that it is God who chooses? I mean, it's just not something that comes to us naturally. What we want to say is, it is God who chooses, and God has said He will be a God to us and to our offspring after us. And boy, am I going to work to raise up this child in the way he should go so that when he's old, he doesn't depart from it. Now, I'm quoting Scripture on both sides, right? They're both true. But you know, when we say, train up a child in the way, he's old, in the way he should go, and when he is old, he will not depart from it, that is a placeholder for the fact that we really want to have some control over the spiritual future of our children. Now, am I saying we have no control? Yes, I am. Because the word control is absolute. Am I saying that we have no influence? No, I'm not. Tremendous influence. Train up a child in the way he should go so that when he is old, he will not depart from it. And when he is old, he will not depart from it. There's no question that the godly Christian home, that a godly Christian mother, look at Augustine and his mother Monica, without benefit of her husband, having any influence that was positive whatsoever. And you go down through history, and many of the great servants of the Lord have had 
only one of their parents believe. And the influence those parents have had on them has been unbelievable for good. But you know what? Not one of those people is in the kingdom of God because their mother or their father controlled their spiritual future. Or, in many of your cases, maybe a godly grandmother. You see, deep down inside of us, those of us who are parents, really don't like the fact that the Bible says to us that the race is not to the strong or to the swift. That the Bible says that the king's heart is a river under the control of God. That the Bible says, you have not chosen me, but I have chosen you. That the Bible says, now let's go back and look at Abraham. What does the Bible say about Abraham and who are his descendants? Isn't that the whole thing that's at stake in the book of Galatians? Who are real children of Abraham? All right. Who is Abraham's seed? All right. Here's an interesting thing. If you'll go back and you'll look at this argument that Paul is making here, and you'll look at who he's talking about, what he's saying is, to whom does the word seed apply? Does it apply to those who are of the blood lineage of Abraham, the physical children, or does it apply both to Jews who are blood descendants of Abraham and also those who mark themselves in blood by being circumcised and by this right become naturalized children of Israel? Who is Abraham's seed? That is the question. And the circumcision party had an answer to this question, namely that by blood descent or by naturalization as an adult, being circumcised as an adult, children of Abraham, children of Israel, Jews, were those marked with the sign of God's covenant who joined Abraham in obeying that covenant. And they would freely acknowledge that some obeyed it subconsciously, or unconsciously, they were circumcised at eight days and they didn't have a choice in it and they became Jews, both by birth and by circumcision. But they said there were others who would make a choice to become Jews and they would be circumcised as adults. Nevertheless, both of them have obeyed the covenant. You have God's promise, you have obedience, both together. And when it comes to the church, you have the blood of Jesus Christ to which all of the orgy of blood in the Old Testament, all right, their whole cult practices... The orgy of blood, all of that orgy of blood points forward to the Lamb of God whose blood was shed for the forgiveness of sins on the cross. And they say, yes, we believe that Jesus Christ is the fulfillment of everything in the Old Testament they were told to do that points to, the, to that moment in time. Nevertheless, those of you who believe in Jesus being the Lamb of God, finally doing in reality what all the Old Testament pointed to, you have to be circumcised. And see... Again and again and again, you have the promise of God and you have the obedience of man. All right? And it goes back and forth, and this is what is dividing the church at this time. The argument of verse 16 is that this same covenant is not only irrevocable, but that ultimately it points forward to Jesus Christ and his descendants for its fulfillment. That if you go back to the book of Genesis you'll see that we have a problem. And that is, Paul uses, if you look in verse 16, he uses the argument of the singular of seeds. He says it doesn't say to seeds, but to seed. All right, You see the two uses of seed in verse 16. Go back and look with me at Genesis chapter 12, verse 7. Come forth from your own body, he shall be your heir. And he took him outside and said, Now look toward the heavens and count the stars if you are able to count them. And he said to him, So shall your descendants be. Then he believed in the Lord and he reckoned it to him as righteousness. Now, the Hebrew word translated descendants in each of those cases is translated by Paul. Because Paul writes in what language? In Greek. So when we read Galatians, Paul is writing in Greek, and we're having that translated into English. When we read Genesis, Moses is writing in Hebrew, and we're having that translated into English. And so here we watch Paul, in Greek, translating a Hebrew construction. 
Now, what word does he use in Greek to translate this word descendants in Hebrew? Well, the Greek word is the word sperma. Now, we all know what that word means, right? It's the male fertility, all right? What's interesting, though, is if you think about the use of the word sperm, you realize that this word can be both a singular and a plural. Now, it's very much like our English word seed. Again, it can easily be used singularly, absolutely singularly, but almost never is used that way. Almost always the word seed is used as a plural. Now, here's what's interesting. If you go back and look at the Hebrew that Paul is translating with the Greek word sperma, all right, the Hebrew word is a word that has that same identity. As a matter of fact, this is one of those places where a stupid student of Greek, <laughs> me, all right, would argue that it would be better to translate with a transliteration like sperma or sperm or with the word seed, all right, because both of those words would do a better job of making the connection between this and Paul's argument to us. Nevertheless, in the Old Testament, the words that used is descendants, and it's a misleading word. And it's misleading precisely because we don't use the, the English word descendants often in a limited way, whereas we do often use seed or sperm in a limited way. Now, how could I say that? Well, think of seed. Get that seed. Not any seed. Go get the seed. All right? It's what's referred to as a generic singular or as a collective singular. In other words, it's clear that there are many seeds, but it's still a limited seed. Do you understand that? And that's what Paul is saying here. Paul is saying, look, when you look back into Genesis, it is focused on one seed. Now, that doesn't mean that there aren't a bunch of people in that one seed, all right? But it is a specific seed. And what is interesting is that the Jews who were opposed to Paul in the church in Galatia would have understood exactly what he was saying here, all right? They would have known that he was making reference to the fact that they spoke of Abraham's seed in a limited way, that it wasn't an unlimited plural but that it had a very specific meaning. Now, what was the specific meaning that that word had to the Jews at the time? The specific meaning I already gave to you. And it is that Abraham's seed is not the Gentiles. All right? Now, that's obvious, because how can they be called Abraham's seed? They didn't come from him, right? All right? That Abraham's seed, they would say, is not even natural-born Jews who are physical descendants of him, and yet who in a major sinful way deny the law of God. All right? They would say that Abraham's seed does not include physical descendants of Abraham. Now, I hope you're getting real uptight right now. Because right now, if you're following, what you should be asking is, well, that's crazy-making. If the word seed that's used there, when God promises to give him the land and promises to make his descendants many, if that word doesn't refer to his physical descendants, then there can be no meaning to the word seed. In other words, I've just narrowed it too much. All right, watch this now. It does refer to his physical seed, but it doesn't refer to his physical seed. It's a both and. Now, watch this. Remember how I said the reason we always want to hold on to obedience? Remember I said the reason we always want to do that is just to take it on my level. I don't want to be absolutely dependent on God for the eternal destiny of my children. Okay? You name me off the top of your head, quickly, you name me physical descendants of Abraham. Physical descendants of Abraham. You name me physical descendants of Abraham who will not be in the kingdom of heaven. All right. For this is the word of promise, that this time I will come and Sarah shall have a son. 
And not only this, but there was Rebekah also. So he goes back and he points to Ishmael. And he says, no, Ishmael was a child of the flesh. Ishmael was not a part of the people of God. And he says, now let's move forward to Rebekah. Again, direct descendant of Abraham. And he says about Rebekah, there was Rebekah also when she had conceived twins by one man, our father Isaac. For though the twins were not yet born and had not done anything good or bad, so that God's promise according to his choice would stand. His purpose, according to his choice, would stand, not because of works, but because of him who calls. It was said to her, the older will serve the younger, just as it is written, Jacob I love, but Esau I hated. Now, brothers and sisters, Abraham's given the promise. Abraham is told, I'll make your descendants more than the sand on the beach, more than the stars in the sky. Abraham is told, I will give you this land. Abraham is told, your descendants will inherit from you these promises. Abraham thinks descendants. Abraham, being a normal man, says, well, God has told me that I should circumcise my children. So he's made the promises, but now if I go ahead and circumcise my children, then he'll be faithful to the promise. All right? And then the Jews later, having given, been given the law 431 years later, say, Abraham received the promise. Abraham circumcised his children. We circumcise our children. Then 430 years later, the law was given, and we still obey the law. So we've got a triumvirate. All right? We've got the promise, we've got the circumcision, and we have the law. All right? And man, we got our bases covered. The bases are loaded. Okay? We can't lose. And more importantly, our children can't lose. And then along comes Paul. And doesn't Paul do a nasty job of disappointing us? Couldn't you have written so many parts of the New Testament better than he did? You know, like particularly the sections about men and women? I mean, that is fully gnarly. Right? And this is gnarly too. In fact, this is gnarly enough to break the heart of a mother who loves her son. Where it says here that Jacob... will be served by Esau. The older will serve the younger. And then it says that this is not because in the womb, before they were born, when God determined this, they did something that earned, on Jacob's part, God's commendation, and on Esau's part, God's condemnation. But it explicitly says, God made the choice in the womb, before they'd ever done anything that you could blame or declare to be praiseworthy. And so, people, it's in the womb. You cannot make the case that somehow those twins, one of them did something bad and one of them did something good, and that's the reason that in heaven one of them won't be in heaven and the other will be in heaven. I mean, do you understand this? This text, which is inspired by God, and God does not lie and doesn't change, this text says that one of them will be in heaven and the other won't because of the promise of God. And as parents, we recoil in horror. And we go, I can't be that impotent. I can't have absolutely no ability to control my children's spiritual destiny. Or as grandparents, we look at kids being raised by children that obviously are God-haters and not God-lovers. And we say to our father, Father, let me send them birthday cards with verses and Bibles when they graduate from junior high school and and money to help them go to a Christian school or to a Christian college and and let me pray for them. And and Father, Father, let all my actions make up for the absence of actions on the part of the parents because I know that your promise isn't sufficient that we have to... Well, I don't want to be disrespectful, Father, but but we we have to put something in it and, and there must be something I cling to other than simply the promise of God. And, and what does Paul say? Under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, Paul says, look, you guys, it happened in the womb. It happened before any of them had done anything to deserve either condemnation or commendation. All right? It was unequivocal. God made the determination. And you say, but it can't be! How could that be fair? How could it be fair that in the womb, 
It can't be fair. And God, being wise, says this. Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. What shall we say then? There is no injustice with God, as there may it never be. For he says to Moses, what? I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. Now, brothers and sisters, this is not the God that that we have ads in the IDF saying that God is pro-choice. All right? That is a different God. All right? This God says what? This God does not say, I'm very concerned about whether or not you feel that your personal moral choice is being dealt with with integrity. This God says what? This God says, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy. This God is not beholden to you. It may be the first time in your life that you have ever run into an authority who has not had their main desire to please you. Do you understand me? God does not have his main desire to please you. Now you look at me and you say, this guy's turned into a monster. No, I'm preaching the word. That's what I'm supposed to do. I'm not supposed to scratch your itching ears. All right? I am telling you what God himself has said. God himself has said, he will have mercy on whom he has mercy. This does not invalidate your choice. This God who says he will choose whom he will have mercy on, this God says, choose you this day whom you will serve. So yes, there is a sense in which God is pro-choice, but whatever you mean by that, once you make that choice, if your choice has been not nothing in my hand I bring simply to the cross I cling, this God will send you to hell eternally. Now, does that sound like the kind of choice we like? God says, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy. Then God says, choose you this day whom you will serve. God says, choose life so that you and your children after you may live. And then this God says, if you do not choose my son, I will cast you into outer darkness where there is weeping and gnashing of of teeth eternally. Now, You either love this God, and with Paul say, what, should we accuse God of being unjust? For God's sake, no! He is perfect. You either worship this God, or you will be broken on the cornerstone of His Son. There is no other path to heaven. There is no other name given among men whereby you might be saved. You cannot say that the Christian God is exclusive and so you'll go over and become a Hindu or a Buddhist or a Muslim or a Mormon. You can't do that. This God does not care what your intentions are. He doesn't care. He will have mercy on whom He has mercy. Okay? It's on me. I told you I don't want this to be the way it happens with my children. I told you I want to have an influence on my children so that I can control their spiritual destinies. I want infant baptism to save my children. But it doesn't. God is not a respecter of persons. He does not come into this world to see how we feel he should conform to our desires and then try to come as close as he can to our desires in such a way as he remains God and yet has a similarity to what we all think he should be. Okay? God says, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy. All right? Now, you may think this morning that um, there would be a softer way for me to say this. So here, I'm going to do it. Okay, here it comes. If I could, I'd come up with a nice soft tune, but I can't do that quickly. So let me have my inflection show it to you. God says that he will have mercy on whom he has mercy. And many of you could do much better. It would help to have a woman say it. 
Because a woman's voice naturally is softer. But brothers and sisters, there's no way around God. He made you. He does not ask what you would like. He says, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy. Now, one final comment. If it's not about obedience to the law generally, and if it's not about circumcision's obedience, if it's only about the promise, the covenant, God's decree, all right, then the question becomes, is it hopeless? <laughs> and this is what I just don't get. Honestly, I have never found myself asking the question that Paul answers there in Romans. I have never felt that it's depressing, discouraging, defeatist for God to say he will have mercy on whom he has mercy. Now, you know where I'm headed, right? Okay. Are any of you self-aware? Have any of you come up with one reason in yourself that you should ever have mercy from God? Have any of you seen anything in yourself that would ever cause you to be able to stand before God and say, here I am, I'm ready for mercy, and I think I'm qualified. (laughs) I mean, don't you realize, the minute you redefine the teaching of Scripture so that it's both God and us, it's hopeless for you. It cannot work. Because you are what the Bible says, there is none that is righteous. No, and in case you didn't get the point, it then says, no, not one. Not your grandmother. Okay, 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 listen, listen, listen. What's depressing about God making the choice? You can either look, choose you this day whom you will serve. And you can see behind that a, a shell game, like you see at the inner city where they got the cards, you know, and the minute you bet a big bundle of money, all of a sudden it's gone and your money's gone. You know, God's saying choose. He doesn't really mean choose. He really means he chooses, right? And you can just have a jaundiced and bitter and nasty attitude towards that and say, you know, I have a notion of fairness, and I'll tell you something, this God of Scripture is a God that on no level conforms to my notion of fairness. Nowhere. Or you can say, I've been trying to figure out how there could ever be hope for my son. I mean, he is one hopeless, nasty dude. That's me, guys. Ask my mother, she'll tell you. Okay? And that's you. And although I have trouble believing it, it's not just true of men, it's true of women. You are nasty. Now, I don't mean I don't like you. God has given us all grace so that we're able to be likable and to like one another. It's amazing. If we really saw each other as we were, I think we'd all hold our noses and run. Okay? But the point is, we are nasty, but Jesus Christ is holy. And it doesn't depend upon the righteousness of Christ and me going into a monastery, taking a vow of celibacy, and then doing confession. All right? It doesn't depend upon me being a child of the promise and placing my faith in Christ and then being circumcised and then doing some of the law, especially the serious part of the law. All right? It depends on the choice of God. And that means that when we come to Christ, He will not cast us out. When we choose faith in Jesus Christ, He meets us. In fact, He gave us that faith. And so we can sit back and relax. Now, I know some of you right now are going, Oh, I was afraid He'd say that. I am not saying that it means that we have no desire to be holy. I ask you, how can anyone who sees the choice of God not meet it with holiness? If you have met the choice of God and the promise of God and the grace of God and the righteousness of Jesus Christ with a life that is a life of homosexual practice, a life of greed, which is idolatry, a life of gossip, you are not a child of God. That's it. Period. Okay? We don't have anybody who belongs to Jesus Christ who has not had their heart changed and who is not holy. Without holiness, no man will see God. 
But then some of you, being smart, will say, yeah, and then it says, remember Esau. (laughs) Yes, but it's not telling us that Esau lost the kingdom of God because he wasn't holy, but rather his lack of holiness was the fruit of someone who was not chosen by God. And he is culpable for that action because God doesn't answer to our notions of what are fair. God gives the gift of faith and then he condemns those to whom he doesn't give the gift. And this means one of two things. Either that you resist God and you say he doesn't conform to my notion of fairness or you say, thank God it doesn't depend on me because there's not one thing in my life that I've done right. And here is a place I can stand. And that's what Martin Luther said. When the whole Catholic Church said, how dare you shake your fist in the face of our indulgences? Tetzel is out there selling the Sistine Chapel, and you have the audacity to say that it is by faith alone. And to this day, the Council of Trent documents say that all of us who believe in faith alone and not in works are anathema. And back in the time of the church, at the time of the book of Galatians, the people in the church that argued for, for circumcision were also saying that it didn't count just on Jesus, but that it counted on them fulfilling the righteousness that Jesus had started by themselves being circumcised. And it is the same, it is the same game, the same heresy, all through history. Now we understand it, and the choice is two paths, and which path will you take? You're either going to go and stand before God and say, God, I had to struggle with homosexual desire my whole life, but I fought it hard. And I hope you see that I fought it hard enough to be worthy of you. Or you're going to say, God, I'm proud to honor you. And to say that in my own desires, I constantly, my whole life, desired other men instead of women. But the righteousness of Jesus Christ is my righteousness. And I stand spotless in my Redeemer's robes. And I am not ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ. All right. Choose you this day whom you will serve. The God of your imagination and your sense of fairness and your sense of justice. The American God. The German God. Whatever it is. Or the God of Scripture who will have mercy on whom he has mercy. And then following that mercy will say... Choose you this day whom you will serve. And when you say, I serve Jesus Christ and I place my faith in him, that moment you are transferred from death to life. And when you are transferred from death to life, you don't turn around and say, well, I made the choice and so I'm here by my own will. You say, no, that gift of faith in Jesus Christ came from God because he will have mercy on whom he has mercy. Okay, let's pray.